Good morning, again. I, uh, I want to tell you something. Are you listening? Yes, Phil. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Now, it may come as a bit of a shock. It may come as a surprise. There will be counseling afterwards. But let me tell you something about this church. This church, Skipton Baptist Church, is not perfect. <laughs> that was quite good, actually. <laughs> you can tell pantomime season starting to wind up there. It is not perfect because no church is perfect. There's that old joke, which I love, which is, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll spoil it. Because it's true, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Nevertheless, there is something to be said about the fact that there are model churches. There are model churches. And the church in Thessalonica that we're going to be looking at over this next little while is one of those model churches. So it's one of those churches that perhaps people are inspired by. It's a really good example. People travel to, to kind of experience it. Maybe perhaps you remember the Toronto church in the 90s. People went there to kind of catch a, catch a grip of what was going on. Or maybe more modernly, more modernly, more recently, we have something like Hillsong or Bethel. Places you want to go and experience a model church. Christians want to go and experience and be inspired. Of course, there is always the danger of building these places up as some idealized place of virtual, charismatic, spiritual pilgrimage that you have to go to. And there is that danger, but it's important that there are these places that are model churches. You know I've been involved with um, Alpha for um, a number of years. And quite um, There we go. Perfect church. Um, I've been involved in Alpha a number of years, and that was based at Holy Trinity Brompton, and I've been down there for some courses, I've been down there for some conferences, but only a couple of years ago, um, when Neve was down in London for an audition, which she didn't get, it's all right, we had a lovely weekend, um, we went to Holy Trinity Brompton for a service, and you know, I appreciate everything I've just said about not idealizing and everything like that, but I have to confess, I was a little bit excited of going to Holy Trinity Brompton, and I thought, oh, we're going to see how they do it. It's going to be like really special and all that. And uh, so I was really looking forward to it, and what I discovered when I went there was a complete and utter revelation. Holy Trinity Brompton, the home of Alpha, the marriage course, the parenting course, and of course, the blessed Nicky Gumbel himself was totally and utterly normal. <laughs> I was genuinely taken aback a little bit. And this is how I knew that they were normal. They had notices. More than that, they had rotors. And I thought, this church is normal. It was just a gathering of people, a whole range of ages of people who love Jesus, of ages, races, social backgrounds, uh, and, and that was, it was just normal. And it was so healthy to experience at a church, which in many ways was a, is a model church, but they were normal. They're not perfect. Let me tell you something, which you may be aware of, may not be aware of. Skipton Baptist and the church in Skipton is a model church. We'll look at that a little bit later on. But it is true. We are a model church. And so it's important that we look at the church in Thessalonica 
because it was a model church. Not perfect, of course, but we're going to look at this letter that Paul writes to them over the next few weeks. So we're going to look, this is where Thessalonica is. It's at the top end of what is modern-day Greece in the area of Macedonia. And uh, here, are the, here are the guys that we're going to be talking about. We're going to start, you might want to have um, the Bible open at um, the places that we're looking at. We're looking at First Thessalonians, but we'll also be looking at the book of Acts as well. But let's look at this, First Thessalonians 1 verse 1, and I promise you we're not going through every single word of it, every, ten of, every, every of the 10 verses. But this is really important. The very beginning of this letter, we can read quickly over it and go, yes, we know that really well. It's standard Paul writing. But notice he said, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Something that we need to remember is this. Ministry is never a solo enterprise. It's not what it was meant to be. If you read the the Acts of the Apostles, it's nearly always a disciple and someone. And these people that were mentioned here, there's Silas and there's Timothy. These are people who were, according to his letters, were a source of support and encouragement to Paul. But he was also in a position of mentoring and equipping and releasing them into ministry. So who were they? Because they're part of the letter that they're sending out. First of all, we have Silas or Silvanus. He was a leading member of the church in Jerusalem. And he also was given prophetic gifts and given the mission along with Paul of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Then we have Timothy, little Timmy that we know so well, okay? Timothy was a young man. He was son of a mixed Jewish and Gentile marriage. His mom was a Jew. His father was a Greek. He was from Lystra, and he was probably converted in Paul's first missionary journey. And then after Paul split up with Barnabas, he took Silas and Timothy with him in this, what is termed the second missionary journey. So those are the people who are sending this letter in Paul's name. So it's the first few words of this chapter. Are you still with me? We've only got nine more verses to go. But he writes this, To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. But this is just purely just Paul saying, Dear church, isn't it? It's far from it. The story behind this verse, this initial greeting is massive. And with that, you maybe want to turn in Acts to Acts 16 and 17. And we'll, we'll explore the wonder of the phrasing to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first word that we have there is ecclesia, to the church, the ecclesia. And we think of ecclesiastical as church, but actually just means the gathering. He says, the gathered ones, the called out ones to the community in Thessalonica, in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ. Now, when we read that phrase, the church of the Thessalonians, I don't know what your picture is. Perhaps you think of um, a small building that people are gathering in, or perhaps maybe even a, a large kind of um, you know, basilica. I don't know what your mind goes to. Maybe it, it does involve you know, regular meetings together to worship, and most definitely, definitely from the earliest days of the church the notices slot <laughs> to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was utterly miraculous that this gathering existed at all. It was completely miraculous. So you might want to turn to Acts 16. Well, we're not going to go through it verse by verse, but it's just useful to know. Um, 
This is the story of the origins of the church in Macedonia and Thessalonica in Acts 16 and 17, where they came from, and noticing that this is a really early letter that Paul has written. Actually, it's one of the earliest Christian documents we have. Side note, just think of, this is written about AD 50, within 15 years of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and yet within 15 years, Look what Jesus is seen as. He is seen as Lord and God and Savior. And the whole gospel is there from this very, very first letter. Anyway, that's a side point. We'll get back to it. Okay, Acts 16. Paul, he has plans. He has plans to go to Asia and take the gospel. Yes, hallelujah. Um, take the gospel into Asia Minor, into the Turkey, Turkish interior, and take the gospel there. But he's got frustrated and failed a number of times. God keeps on stopping him. That's where he thinks he's meant to go. Can you imagine the frustration he's feeling? That's where I want to go, but God keeps on stopping me. Then he goes to Troas in the northwest corner of Turkey, and he has a vision, and he has a vision of a man from Macedonia, which I don't know, did he have a badge saying, hi, I'm Bob from Macedonia, but he knew this person was from Macedonia, and the area where Philippi is, the area where Thessalonica is, and this vision, this man is standing begging him to help them. And immediately Paul knows this is a call. So they get their stuff together and they head off to preach the gospel in Europe. This is major. Okay, there were some Christian communities scattered around in the diaspora of, of the Jewish kind of sacking of Jerusalem but, and other kind of um, persecutions. But this is the first concerted mission to Europe of which you and I are the spiritual descendants of. This is massive. This little hop from Troas across the Aegean Sea over to a place called Neapolis and then to Philippi and Thessalonica and the rest of the story, we are follow-ons from that. This is a major significant event and it's in response to a vision from God. So he goes from Troas, he goes to Neapolis and Philippi. Philippi, we hear the story that he meets Lydia, the first European convert in this mission, and he leads her to Jesus. Then he leads a fortune-telling slave girl, releases her from demonic influence, and causes a riot. They're arrested, and that night they're miraculously released from their chains. They lead the jailer and his family to Christ. Then, then they force the authorities to do a public pardoning, and then they're told to get away. So they leave, and they go to Thessalonica, and that's where our people are. And there was a synagogue there, and as usual, Paul goes there as his starting point. And he spends time reasoning and explaining and proving that Jesus was the Christ who had to die and raise from the dead for only three weeks. It says for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them. It's like one of those summer mission trips that Paul had. Three weeks in Thessalonica. And it says the response was a few Jews... Not a few prominent women, which I don't, you know, use single negatives or double negatives, just tell us what you mean. But a large number of God-fearing Greeks chose to follow the way of Jesus. This church of Thessalonica is majorly focused on these God-fearing Greeks. So who were they? These were Gentiles. These were Gentiles who were searching for something more than what they were experiencing in their tired, old, mythological pagan gods. They were Greeks who'd been previously following the ways of worshiping those familiar names like Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite and Apollo. They were in Thessalonica in the shadow of Mount Olympus itself, 50 miles away to the south, across a channel. There was the mountain. There was the home of the gods. They were surrounded by these pagan gods, and yet they knew there was something more. 
they were, they'd already departed that. They were asking the Jewish people, you've got something. Can you tell us? That's what they were, God-fearing Greeks. They were desperately searching for the truth of God. And I really need to keep up with my PowerPoint. They were already searching for the truth. This is really important. They'd already started exploring God and perhaps either... Um, Actually, or metaphorically, these were the people that Paul is shown in the vision. People desperately seeking after the truth of God and needing someone to tell them, but there wasn't anyone. And this was a prompt in the first place. This is the prompt from God. That's why this is miraculous, this church in Thessalonica, because God prompted it through this vision. Even though Paul's idea was to go to Asia, God kept frustrating his plans because God knew the people in Macedonia and in Thessalonica were desperately searching for the truth and he needed Paul and his friends to go and tell them. And the vision and what actually happened in Thessalonica showed that these people were ready and waiting and indeed desperate for the good news, but they had no one. Hence, begging Paul, please come and tell us. More than ever, I think, in our contemporary culture, people are looking and searching and are desperate for answers. They're looking for meaning, they're looking for purpose, they're looking for direction. They're looking for hope and they're looking for love. They are looking, waiting, and desperate for the good news of Jesus Christ, even if they cannot articulate it that way. They are desperate for it, but let me ask you, who is actually telling them about it? Who's telling them? Because if you know anything, you know there's been a wide-scale rejection of the church and its traditions. Just read church attendance statistics. Just look at church closures and the decreasing aging membership roles. Read the population census information, which says people are not aligning themselves with Christianity, but my goodness, they're calling themselves spiritual. They are looking for something, and they're not looking at it, looking for it, and the church. And they're looking for it in some pretty weird and random places. They're basing their hope on science-ism, which isn't a proper ism, but it captures a lot. That science and progress will answer all our problems. Well, we know that's not the case. Or maybe humanism, we are the source of our own salvation. Paganism, do you know that there are people in this town who genuinely worship the Viking gods Odin and Thor? And I'm not taking the mick. They are committed to those gods and goddesses. And we have lots of people who are dabbling with paganism because they're looking for something deep, deep into a sense of spirituality. They're dabbling with Eastern mysticism, eclectic spiritualities and New Age philosophies. They're exploring the paranormal and spiritualism. We've, been, we've said before, we've been taken aback by the number of people we've met on the streets in Skipton who've said we have a history in the church, but the church has let us down. We've been hurt in the past. It didn't satisfy our needs, but it's okay because I go and speak to my dead grandmother through a medium. They are looking for something more, and the church is sitting on it, and we've decided not to tell them. The thing is, these areas that they're looking at, spiritualism, paganism, new age, eclectic philosophies, they are willing to talk to people who are looking, and people are listening to what they've got to say. So here's a bit of a weird challenge as we get cracking. Ask God to show you who he wants you to share the story of Jesus with. Not who you think you should, 
Not who you think would be easy because they're virtually a Christian anyway and it'll be a home run. Who is God asking you to be the answer to their question? Where? Why? How? God? It says in Romans 10, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one they've not heard of? And how can they not hear unless someone tells them? That is what Paul does in obedience. He responds to that cry, please come and help us. Back to, Acts, back to Thessalonians or Thessalonica. In response to an amazing response from the people, the Jews kick up a fuss and a lynch mob is grabbed from the marketplace. I didn't know, is that where you go to get a lynch mob these days? lynchmob.com and they go and they ambush Paul and Silas and instead they take Jason and others and drag them in front of the city officials. Has it occurred to you these guys are like three-day-old Christians? They've just become Christians and their first experience of church outing is in front of the city officials. It's certainly not a picnic at the park. Their first experience as Christians is persecution. Maybe we're not totally aware of that, but certainly in our culture, but we know it from open doors from our relationship with Eddie that there's a reality in our world today that if people choose to follow Jesus, they are choosing a possible death sentence or to lose their job or to be excluded from their family. Thankfully, these guys, Jason and his guys, were released on bail but what a welcome to their newfound faith. So after a mission lasting just over three weeks and having a number of newly believing Christians who are now targeted because of their faith, Paul and his friends are asked to leave for their own safety. So they go to Berea and leaving behind this fledgling church, wondering what's going to happen to them. And Paul's carrying that burden. What's going to happen to these guys? And they go to Berea and they have a good response from Jews and the Greeks. But again, the rent-a-mob from Thessalonica turn up, cause havoc. And then they say, clear out of here for your own safety. So they send Paul to Athens and Silas and Timothy stay, probably to look after the fledgling church. So Paul goes to Athens. And as he's there, he's, philo- he's meeting with the Greek philosophers and, and wrestling with their um, ideas. With a few people making commitments, it's generally not a great response. And he's laughed out of Athens. So he turns up at Corinth. And that's where he stays for around two years. And Paul, at this point, you can probably imagine, is thoroughly demoralized. His heart was to go into Asia. God stopped that. He had a vision to go into Thess- to Macedonia. He does that, and every place, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then down to Athens, he is kicked out, he causes a fuss, and it just feels completely fruitless. So whenever he writes to 1 Corinthians in 1 and 2, he says, remember, I came to you in fear and trembling and weakness. Paul is wiped out. He's worried about what's going on in those churches that he's given birth to or he's helped to, to develop, and he's just washed out. And then... Silas and Timothy turn up with news about how the churches are getting on. And Paul hears that the church in Thessalonica is growing strong. Can you grasp the relief that he gets? So now when you read these words that he writes on the PowerPoint, when it works, when it says, we always thank God for you. This is not just a a nice gesture. He's saying, I've been praying for you and I find out you're still going strong. How amazing is that? This is a real heartfelt feeling from him. He's, 
he's still, he knows that they're still believing and they are living the life of the gospel. We read in, uh, in verses 2 and 3. It goes on and says, their work, what they're doing, how they're living is being inspired by their faith. Because of the love of God in their lives, they are laboring with effort, working hard in spite of knockbacks to show that love to others. They're enduring hardships, opposition, persecution, and even death. Why? Because they have a hope in Jesus for now and for the future. And that certainly comes up in both First and Second Thessalonians, this hope for the future. These key things, faith, hope, and love. Do you recognize them from 1 Corinthians 13, key characteristics of a healthy, love-filled church, and Thessalonica has got them. The last contact he had with them, they were facing an onslaught of persecution, and then he gets this news that they are going strong. I, a couple of years ago, I was um, challenged in my quiet time to write down a list and to pray for those people who, over the years, I've had some kind of privilege of being involved in their journey of faith, whether that's coming to the Lord or whether it's actually discipling them. And I started writing down these names, and as the names came to mind and their faces appeared in my imagination, and as I wrote their names down, I have to tell you, sometimes it was utterly heartbreaking as I recognized that a number of these names represented people who no longer followed Jesus, who had drifted away, fallen away or completely rejected for any number of reasons. And it was heartbreaking. But I have to tell you, my heart soared whenever I read some names who I knew were still continuing following Jesus. And more than that, they were continuing following him passionately, even during some pretty dark personal times. People who were ongoingly making a kingdom difference. And I have to say, Lara Bundock, you were one of them. Is that all right to say that? great because I just did. (laughs) People who have continued going on even when it's hard. Perhaps you can have a think for yourselves of those names of people that you have influenced, that you have inputted into the lives. We're rubbish at this, by the way, because we just think, oh, it wasn't me. (laughs) We're very British and Christian about it. You will have had input. You will have had influence. Before the Lord, Think about those. In fact, do it as, a, as an activity at home. Write down a list of people you have influenced, impacted, and, and led. Think about those who have drifted from the Lord. And think about those who are continuing with Jesus. Pray for them. If you try and do that and you can't think of anyone, I'll leave that between you and God to work out. But if you can think of someone who's continuing to keep on going. Someone you taught at Sunday school, Sunday gang, youth group, someone on an alpha course, a small group, someone you prayed with or led to the Lord, think that they are going on with the Lord, the thrill of their going strong. That's the feeling that Paul has when he hears this news of the church in Thessalonica. Who have you influenced? So we're learning now, as we go forward in this chapter, how the gospel came to the Thessalonians. Because it came to them through someone. It didn't just drop out of fresh air. We covered that, haven't we? Through Paul and Silas. And it says in verse 4 and 5, a number of ways that it came to them. First of all, it came with words. In Acts 17, it says, we, re- we read that Paul started, started in the local synagogue and he reasoned, he explained, and he proved. He used words. It's become a common approach from Christians that our witness 
is with our actions and it's how the gospel is spread. Often we quote St. Francis of Assisi, in every way spread the gospel and if you have to, use words. We like that phrase, don't we? Because it's like a lifeboat that gets us out of trouble. We can act nicely and then people will get the gospel. I know that this has been used as a lifeboat by people lacking confidence or being afraid because I've used that phrase for myself to get out of some sticky situations. But my problem is that when I come back to Jesus, Jesus was not silent. He has the most effective living witness, but he wasn't silent. He used words. All the disciples used words. The fact that you're sitting here in church means that at some point, someone or some people told you the good news of Jesus. Am I right? Or did you just imagine and go, this sounds like a good idea. Let's go to a church. Someone told you the good news of Jesus. There is a time to speak. It's not simply good enough just to live out the Christian life. Tell people about Jesus and what he's done. We've done that through um, the Do You Know Him. Whenever we've done um, the evangelism training just the other year, we did that together. Whenever I go to other churches and talk about the outreach that we do with Do You Know Him, we explain that it's about telling your story. I have to say, you may not have a complete and authoritative ability to explain the complexities of the doctrine of the atonement. You may not be able to grasp the theological framework to convey the essence of the soteriology of the theology of God. But I say amen and thank God for that. Because you can tell your story. You can tell people what Jesus has done in your life. The difference he has made. In fact, we're told to, in 1 Peter, it says, be ready to tell people for the reason. Can you explain it if your friend at work or at school or at college said to you, what is this that Christians believe? Would you go, um, there's an alpha course. Can you tell the difference? And if you, have, if you haven't done that, have a go. Get a friend, practice it, refine it, so you can share the story of Jesus. Words in themselves are not enough. You also need actions, don't you? Hello? You need actions, yes? That's not what Paul says. Paul says you need power. Not just actions. Power to prove. And this word is dynamis, which actually means explosion. You need power along with these words. And he's not just referring to miraculous signs and wonders, but he isn't ruling them out. He's saying whenever he came with the gospel, it made an impact. It made a difference. And I didn't realize I was going to keep on going over and over again. But hey, never mind. An old evangelist reflected once that uh, whenever St. Paul came to a town and preached the gospel, it served up a riot. When he comes and preaches the gospel, they serve up tea. The gospel is powerful. When the church does good works, good things happen. And there's often good response. When the church preaches the gospel in words and power, lives are transformed. And we've started to see that, haven't we? We've started to see that move of God's spirit. We've seen those coincidences that aren't really coincidences. We've seen answers to prayer. We've seen opportunities open up to share our faith and share our story. We've seen lives transformed, people freed, delivered, given hope, and shown love. We've seen an increase in the work of the Holy Spirit in our church and in the church in Skipton, a demonstration of the Spirit's power, a gift of words of knowledge, pictures, and prophetic uh, words and, and utterances. And as we said a few weeks ago, there is more to come. But this is not just a random gift of clever words. This comes from somewhere 
comes from the Holy Spirit. In the recounting of what happened in the establishing the church in Thessalonica, he had a vision inspired by the Spirit of God. He had encounters with the people in Thessalonica with the Spirit of God. This passage is thoroughly Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is absolutely the work of the Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about here that has happened in Thessalonica. I've been emphasizing with our team to the point that they just want to slap me because I say it all the time to remind them that it is not our job to save people. It's not our job to win the argument. You can win the argument and lose the person. Our job is to be there, to demonstrate, to show love and let the Holy Spirit loose. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is with deep conviction that the Holy Spirit works. You know, we can put on great programs, great uh, demonstrations, and people can respond emotionally, but that's not deep conviction. This is a deep conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, both within our own hearts and our conviction of the truth of the gospel, but also the response of people. Deep conviction was the only thing that kept them going in the reality of their faith. Why they had their first church experience was persecution and they could handle it. And then just finally want to come in with this. The gospel was brought with example. Paul says, you remember the way that we lived among you? Even powerful words will not have a lasting effect unless your life is consistent with the message. We're called to be people of integrity. That is not the same as if we're Christians, we can never mess up or make a mistake or be grumpy or overreact or use harsh language. At least I hope not because the other week I did. And to my shame, I'll tell you, I was in one of our supermarkets. It was a Friday evening. I was, as they term, hungry. I was hungry, and I was getting annoyed, and something cropped up. And with one of the assistants there, um, th she just said the wrong thing. <laughs> and there was just this red mist came down. And I was just, I mean, it wasn't abusive. I was just a bit rude and abrupt and stormed off with a very determined walk. And yeah, maybe there was a bit of guilt, but there was also something. I went back and apologized the next day. And the reason I went back, yeah, maybe because of guilt, but also because I was aware that I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And the manner in which I live reflects upon him. It was utterly humiliating and absolutely right. We are to be people of integrity. Otherwise, it will impinge against the gospel rather than impact for it. But the thing is, they set an example which the Thessalonians copied. I don't know if you've ever seen this sticker. Don't follow me, follow Christ. Um, I've seen it a few times, and uh, it's quite funny. It says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of suffering. This phrase, don't follow me, follow Jesus, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Don't follow my example, follow Jesus. I'm just rubbish, and I can do whatever I want then. False. The New Testament actually says thoroughly, you are the example for people to follow. How about this? You are sometimes the only Jesus that someone will have come in contact with. Is, does that not scare you at all? That people see you, how you act, what you say, what you do, and they interpret Jesus through that. That's a bit of a sobering thought, isn't it? But more than that, how you live your life is an example for other Christians to model after you, the importance of mentoring. So the more we get to be like Jesus, the more people follow us. And then by following us, because we're following Jesus, they might be following 
in the pattern of Jesus as well. It is scary, but we need to be like Jesus because people will be following us. And the challenge is a biggie that that is what we need to do. Follow me as I follow Christ, is something Paul wrote. This is not about being inherently good people. It's about following and committing ourselves to be more like Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to change us to be more like him. It says, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and the Lord's message rang out. This minority group in a cosmopolitan trade center in the center of the ancient world were seeking God and were introduced to a personal relationship with Jesus from these itinerant preachers who had been called miraculously to share with him the good news. And in spite of a limited time and increased persecution, they were still going strong. They had turned from idols. Let's see what, this is the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? They turned from idols, conversion, repentance. They served the true and living God, lifestyle. They were waiting for his son, the incarnation and deity of Jesus, who was raised from the dead. They were waiting for Jesus who rescues us. In that one verse, just at the end, it captures the the story of the Thessalonians, and it was ringing out throughout the whole of the country. What God was doing was being gossiped about around the then world. People were talking about what was going on at the very beginning of this, and we're coming back to it now. I said, this church and the church in Skipton are a model church. And the reason I know this is because I was at CAP earlier on this week, and uh, it, was about, it was a group of church leaders in a kind of forum discussing the partnership between CAP and the church, and so there's a small group of us, and I'd met up with Ruth Howard Burton. She told me, under pain of death, that I needed to make sure I told people about Do You Know Him and about the unity movement that's happening in Skipton. So I went, yes, I will do. I will do, absolutely. So I went, and uh, I met a few people, and uh, I got as far as saying I'm from Skipton, and a number of people went, oh, yeah, Skipton. I've heard about what's going on there. I've heard about the churches working together. I've heard about things happening. And I didn't need to say any more almost. That's not the first time that's happened. We've been to a number of conferences and people have gone, well, first of all, they say, Skipton, oh, you know Lisa. That's usually the first thing. <laughs> Generally, it's more true than you realize. And the second thing is that, yeah, we've heard things are happening there. Now, at the very start, I reminded you, this church is not perfect. You know that. Our church in Skipton is not perfect. The Do You Know Him initiative and all the things that have shot off from it is not perfect. But in obedience to God, what God has been doing has created an impact that is being gossiped about and inspiring other places. So the challenge for us is to be a, continue to be a model congregation to continue to be a model church, to continue being model Christians. The church in Thessalonica was a model church. People looked up to them. It was full of faith and love and hope. They turned from their pagan ways. They were accepted the truth. They were following Jesus. And the message rang out. And this should be our aim and our prayer, to be a church worthy of imitation, where the gospel rings out. And the aim is not empire building, but kingdom building and gospel spreading. Paul doesn't commend the Thessalonians for the size of their church. Oh no, he commends them because they are bearing the message. Let me just read you as I finish the message version of those last few lines. It says this. Do you know that all over the province of both Macedonia and Achaia, believers look up to you? 
The word has gotten around. Your lives are echoing the master's word, not only in the provinces, but all over the place. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. And hear this, my friends, our congregation, our church in Skipton, you are the message. You are the message. And may that message ring loud and clear and inspire others. Amen.